Hey everyone and welcome to your weekly Linux and open source news podcast. I'm your host Nick and this is a show where we do a nice big recap of everything that happened last week in the Linux and open source world. So this week we have a bunch of stuff. We have Mozilla launching a new product that feels way overpriced for what it does, but they're also getting a new CEO in the process and apparently completely discarding everything they said about pivoting towards AI. We have some moves from Ubuntu focusing on snaps and working hard on their immutable Ubuntu core desktop. We have Elementary OS 8 now accessible in early access. We have Apple doubling down on their malicious compliance with the EU regulations. We have some security flaws in Mastodon and Linux and some cool and weird Linux gaming related news as well. So as always, if you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links that I used are in the show notes. And if you want to help support the show, you have plenty of links in the show notes as well. And do know that if you become a Patreon member or a YouTube member, you will get access to a daily Linux and open source news show as an RSS feed if you go to Patreon or as little videos that you'll get on your subscription feed on YouTube. So don't hesitate to check that out. This really helps supporting the channel and the show. And you also get daily information about Linux uh, in a five to 10 minute format. And we're going to start with Mozilla. And as you know, Mozilla is currently very dependent on Google. Google pays enormous sums of money to Mozilla to have Google be the default search engine in the web browser. And this is their majority of their revenue. So they are looking at avenues to generate some money without depending on Google all that much. And their latest idea is to let people subscribe to a new service that they called Monitor Plus. Uh, You might already know Firefox Monitor. It's a service that Mozilla already offers to let you see if your email address is included in a leak somewhere. So it's basically a I have been pawned uh, service for your email address. You just subscribe to various email addresses and Mozilla will just send you an email or tell you when your email address has been found in a leak. So you know that this account or your data is potentially at risk and you can take action on the affected online accounts. Now with Monitor Plus, they will now let you attempt to remove that information from data broker websites, including removing your phone number, your email address, and your home address. So this service basically scans more than 190 data broker websites to do so. And if they find any of your personal info, they will request that this data broker remove it because you didn't consent to this data being sold. The issue here is not that the service is bad because it looks like an actually interesting proposition to at least try and remove your data from some of these leaks. The problem is that they charge an eye-watering $14 per month, which feels insanely expensive for what is basically insurance without any guarantee that they will actually get your data removed from the broker's websites. Because first, they cannot scan every single broker out there. Second, they can request the removal, but there's no guarantee that it's actually going to get removed, especially if that data broker is not located in a country with strong privacy laws. And third, it doesn't really solve the issue of these data being sold on the black market or anything. So basically, if 
it's still available in one data source, it's still available out there. And so paying $14 per month to maybe at some point have less chance that this data is going to be bought doesn't feel like a great proposition. It's more expensive than Netflix, it's more expensive than YouTube Premium, and I don't think that the value proposition here is as important. So it's good to see Mozilla trying to get under the thumb of Google, but it feels absolutely overpriced for what it does. I would consider it at maybe four to five dollars a month, but at 14, I'm already debating keeping YouTube premium, which I'm subscribing to because I don't want ads when watching YouTube on my TV. But yeah, no, that, that's just way too expensive. And it's really weird to offer that service at that price point. I don't know what kind of work goes into asking data brokers to remove that data, but I'm pretty sure it can all be automated. So yeah, it, it feels insanely expensive for what it does. And still on Mozilla, they now have a new CEO. Uh, if you followed recently, they have published their State of Mozilla blog post with their financial information. It was published a few weeks ago, and uh, they had already announced as well that they would pivot towards trying to bring uh, more focused AI products to help you refine your search and stuff like that. I'm guessing this announcement didn't really go well. There was also the controversy of uh, Mozilla's CEO getting a pay raise when the company isn't doing all too good. Uh, so this person, Mitchell Baker, will step down as CEO. She will retain her position of executive chairwoman, so presumably she will keep getting a paycheck from Mozilla. Uh, but she's replaced by Laura Chambers. Uh, she's a person who worked for Airbnb, for PayPal, for eBay, and she served on Mozilla's board for three years. And apparently she's mostly a product person. She's not an engineer, not a developer. I'm sure some people will find that problematic. I personally think that's fine. I don't have any company where an actual developer did a great job at having a strong vision focused on product and getting people to actually use the stuff. I'm sure there are examples, but in my personal experience, product people make better leaders than developers. But yeah, I'm sure some people will find issue with that. Now, Laura Chambers outlined the main focus for the nonprofit. And of course, this is the usual defining a clear strategy, which is something that Mozilla seemingly has lacked for a while. Either they didn't have any strategy on where they wanted to take the nonprofit, or maybe they just didn't communicate that strategy well enough, but it really felt like this was a ship without anyone steering it. Second thing is doubling down on their core products like Firefox. That's an interesting change because while they said that, yes, we want to retain focus on Firefox, but our focus will be on generating money. Now, this is a clear focus. We want to improve our products. Now, they also want to bring new products to market because they do need to get under the thumb of Google and be more independent funding-wise. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting to see that they actually mentioned that they want to focus on the products that they currently have, which aren't doing too good, like Firefox. Now, hopefully, the latest Monitor Plus overpriced thing was a last-ditch effort from the previous CEO and not the first thing this new CEO decided to launch, but that's a service that probably necessitated a lot of development, or at least a bit of development, so I would assume this was decided on and implemented before Laura Chambers arrived. Now, she also seemingly wants to have more engagement with the community. She wants to focus on open source. That cannot hurt because it sometimes feels like Mozilla is a sort of a black box. They're going to be announcing and starting things at random with few discussions and interactions with the community. 
And what's more interesting, there is no mention of AI at all in there. Apart from saying that everyone is currently battling to own the future of AI, they didn't say that they would concentrate on bringing AI-related products or developing any new based AI tool. They just have not mentioned that at all, which is interesting because a few weeks ago they said they were going to pivot towards these technologies. Now, one might think that this previous announcement about AI was very poorly received, and if you add to that the salary controversy, it feels like Mozilla decided that a shakeup was in order. I think it's a good thing. We'll have to wait if Laura Chambers can actually do some good and ride the ship, if they actually refocus on making Firefox relevant again, if they stop chasing the latest tech trends, because this has never been met with any success for Mozilla, and it's not what we expect from them. We expect a browser that is 100% competitive with Google Chrome, which is just as fast, just as featureful, supports the feature that you want. And for now, it can't be said that's the case. Firefox is trailing behind in terms of market share, but also in terms of performance, whether it's on Android or on the desktop. And we don't really want them to chase the latest tech trends. We want them to focus on bringing some private products that perform well, that have all the features, and that just simplify your life. And right now, it doesn't feel like that's what they wanted to do. So we'll have to see if Laura Chambers can do something good, or if it's going to be a continuation of the previous strategy. But I am personally hopeful, just because I, I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy. Now, it looks like Microsoft decided to react to the previous problem with VS Code dropping support for Ubuntu 18.04. I reported on that update last week. It basically broke compatibility with the old LTS for VS Code users, which was an issue because a bunch of users could no longer remotely access some of their 18.04 servers, which are still supported by Ubuntu. And it looks like Microsoft agrees that this transition wasn't done in the best way or with the best timing. And so they decided to give 18.04 another 12 months of support. So they will publish relatively soon what they call a recover update that will restore that support. And it will let people keep getting updates without breaking their workflow. Now, of course, Microsoft had announced that they would drop Ubuntu 18.04 a while back. I think it was in June 2023. And that loss of compatibility with the old LTS was also mentioned in the release notes of the update. But VS Code, like a lot of Electron apps, tends to auto-update by default, so anyone who had not disabled that update was caught off guard. And a nice warning banner or pop-up when saying, hey, do you want to apply this update or before applying it automatically would have been nice. Just as a reminder, hey, if you update our app, you're going to lose compatibility with this. Are you okay with that? That would have been nicer. So now everyone is suitably warned. You have 12 months. After that, you either stop using VS Code, you use something else, or you stop updating VS Code, or you upgrade your servers and your devices. But still, for 12 months, crisis solved, and that's nice. Now, as a lot of people pointed out to me when I mentioned this issue, auto-updates for crucial programs that you absolutely need aren't a good thing. When you use software that you don't control, like VS Code or any other proprietary thing, it is best to at least have the time to read the release notes before the update goes through. And I guess it's also true of open source programs. Just don't apply auto updates to things that are crucial to your workflow. Take the time to read the release notes. Most of the time it won't be of any use, but sometimes it will save you a lot of headache. 
Now, apparently, Kubuntu 24.04 and all the other variants of the future Ubuntu release that use KDE, like Ubuntu Studio, will not move to Plasma 6. Uh, because apparently the feature freeze for 24.04 is right at the same time as the planned Plasma 6 release, meaning that they don't feel they have enough time to test everything to the standard that they expect of an LTS. So Ubuntu users will have to wait for Ubuntu 24.10 to get the latest Plasma release, which is a bit annoying. And as a Patreon member uh, pointed out, why didn't they just delay the release a few weeks? They already did that in 2006 uh, with uh, 6.06. And I feel that they could have done that just two weeks to get some testing and make sure that everything works. Because as I understand it, the feature freeze doesn't mean that, hey, you're going to implement Plasma 6 exactly right before. Technically, they should already have been testing it. And so I'm not sure why they didn't just delay it for a few weeks. But apparently the Kubuntu Council was unanimous on the matter. And I guess it's probably the better decision if they didn't want to push the LTS back. You want to provide the most stable distro you can for an LTS. It's gonna be supported for, what, six years or, or ten years with extended support? And so with a brand new major version of the desktop that will probably receive a lot of updates and patches quickly after release to fix everything that wasn't caught during testing, it wasn't really fit for purpose. Just the timings didn't coincide. Now, of course, there's always the Backports PPA, which is something you can add to your LTS, and that provides newer versions of packages and desktops for Ubuntu. This will very likely let users of 24.04 upgrade to Plasma 6 in the future, but generally, you only get the packages in the Backports PPA once the next release of Ubuntu that has those packages comes out, so you will probably still have to wait for 24.10. It's a bit disappointing that Ubuntu users will not get to use all the cool improvements of KDE for about 8 months after the official release of Plasma 6. It's probably the best decision for an LTS if they didn't want to push it back. But yeah, this means that Ubuntu users will be stuck with subpar Wayland compatibility because Plasma 6 is really the version where you get the decent Wayland support and they will lose out on a bunch of performance improvements, a bunch of app updates, some refinements to the desktop. It's a bit of a shame, but I understand why they did it. And still on Ubuntu 24.04, they will keep doubling down on their Snap packaging format. Yet another default app will move from being shipped as a dev package to being shipped as a Snap. And this time it is Thunderbird. Ubuntu apparently was using the binaries that Thunderbird shipped and packaged that as a Snap, which is obviously not the best. And so now they're going to actually use the source code of Thunderbird to build their entire Snap package, which means that they can now build the Snap for more architectures and they can integrate the email client much better because they can set their own compile flags and their own options to actually make use of what they use on Ubuntu. They can even submit a bunch of patches to their version of the app if they need to. So with these changes, the dev package for Thunderbird will be replaced by the Snap package. And you will only get this if you don't use the minimal install option. Uh, Thunderbird is only included if you install Ubuntu using the full installation option, or if you install Thunderbird after the fact on the minimal install. 
Obviously, this is going to help the Ubuntu team in their packaging efforts because it is way easier to build one snap that will run on any Ubuntu version that supports snaps than building 20 or 30 dev packages for all the currently supported versions of Ubuntu and all different architectures. And it's probably also going to be helpful towards the future immutable distro called Ubuntu Core Desktop, which will also be completely snap-based. So if you like snaps, if you like Ubuntu as it is now, it's not a problem. You're still going to get Thunderbird and it's probably going to be a bit better than it was uh, if you use the snap for that. But if you usually uproot SnapD and every snap package in your Ubuntu install, that's one more thing to get rid of after install. Although I'm pretty sure that if you install SnapD, you will also uninstall all snap packages. Uh, so yeah, probably not an issue for Ubuntu user and probably something that non-Ubuntu users will not like, but who cares because they don't use it, so they're not going to be affected. And since I mentioned Ubuntu Core Desktop, there's been a talk about that specific topic at FOSDEM last weekend. Uh, so if you don't know, Ubuntu Core Desktop is going to be the immutable desktop distro that Ubuntu makes, where everything is packaged as a snap, including the kernel, the firmware, the bootloader, some additional drivers, the apps, the desktop, Wayland, everything is going to be shipped as a snap. And that's a big difference with most immutable distros because these usually rely on Flatpak, which is a format that can't, as far as I know, be used to package all of these lower level components. So Ubuntu Core Desktop will ship the kernel as a snap. They will have a boot base snap package that brings every tool and utility that you need to have a usable system. Then you have a desktop session snap that packages Wayland and Gnome. And finally, you get the apps that are packaged as snaps as well. Now, obviously, the main advantage is that, for example, you could install a beta version of your current desktop alongside it without erasing it or replacing it. You could, in one command line, install a new kernel without breaking anything that comes on top of it, uh, all the while using all the apps that you currently use. You could install a snap package for another desktop environment and things will be separate and they won't mess your configurations from one desktop to another. It's pretty flexible and it's very interesting. Now, development on Ubuntu Core Desktop would be handled by LXD containers because obviously you have a snap-based system, so it's mostly read-only. So if you need a full development environment, you kind of need to use a container, just like on every other immutable distro. Uh, they're apparently still missing a few important pieces, though. Uh, they don't yet support NVIDIA drivers. They don't yet support printers or scanners. They don't have Active Directory, DLNA, and a few other things. So it apparently won't be ready for a release alongside the regular edition of Ubuntu 24.04. It's going to be delayed. Canonical said that they cannot provide a specific date for that release yet because of all of these issues. And personally, I don't really like snaps as a packaging format. They tend to be slower. They tend to be less integrated with the desktop. They lack a bunch of features. Generally, they lack more features than what Flatpak supports. And they are very much an Ubuntu thing. I don't use Ubuntu. Most distros decided to use Flatpaks. Uh, and Ubuntu is probably the only distro that is going all in on those snaps. But as an immutable distro, it seems like an interesting concept, probably a better concept than most, because that single packaging format can actually handle 100% of the system components, not just the app and the library layer. And as far as I know, the 
only other, let's call it immutable distro that can handle all of that with one single packaging format would be NixOS. Anything that is Flatpak based still provides either system images, which are built using regular packages, or they build the base system out of packages and install that to two different root partitions. Now, correct me if I'm missing something here, but it feels like Canonical is the only one that has all the technologies to make this completely integrated with one single packaging format. Now, provided snaps evolve to be a better format for applications, it could be interesting. And if everything is packaged as a snap, it's probably also a good avenue for Ubuntu to notice everything that's missing in terms of communication between all the layers of the OS and actually implementing that in snap or as portals that everyone could get access to. So while I probably will never use Ubuntu Core Desktop as my main operating system because I'm not really a big fan of snaps. I think it's a very interesting project still because it really pushes that concept of the immutable distro as far as I could be pushed. So pretty interesting. Now, speaking of distros, Elementary OS 8 is now available in early access, meaning that if you support the project on Patreon or on GitHub, you can already get an ISO and test things out. Now, obviously, it is still very early days, it is super experimental, so do not run that on a production system. But there are a bunch of cool changes in there. Uh, first, they have moved the updates from the App Center to the Settings app, because App Center is for apps and System Settings is for system-based stuff, including system updates. You can now turn on automatic download of these updates, and the system will also tell you if there are security updates in there, so you know that you probably should apply them quickly. They also improved search in the settings app. Uh, they will rank settings pages in a more logical way in regards to what you're typing. And other settings pages received some loves and some updates, and the app got a new icon. The multitasking view has also replaced its dull gray background with a blurred version of the wallpaper you have on the desktop, which is much better looking. And the workspace switcher now uses rounded corners, and it supports light and dark mode. And on top of that, clicking an apps icon when the app has multiple windows open will no longer just minimize all the windows, it will open a window spread so you can select the one you want to bring to focus. So it's going to be annoying if you just wanted to click the icon to minimize something, but at the same time, it's going to be way better if you use apps that spawn multiple windows. So there's no news yet on whether that early access build supports Wayland, at least I couldn't find it because that's one of the main things uh, for Elementary OS 8, but it's looking good. I'm not expecting any giant desktop redefining changes in there, but as always, everything looks pretty polished, pretty thought out, and yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to cover once it's out. Hopefully it's not too long after 24.04 comes out. Now it looks like Apple's malicious compliance with the EU regulations continues as the betas for iOS 17 keep being released and some things are either not fixed or completely broken and it looks like this is intentional. This time it is progressive web apps which seem to just not work at all anymore on iOS 17 betas, at least in the EU. You can still open a website, you can still create a shortcut on your home screen for that website or web app, but when you open it, it will not open full screen as an app, it will open as a browser tab in Safari, with all the usual Safari UI that you generally do not want in a progressive web app. 
And Apple has never been the friendliest company towards progressive web apps. They've taken so long to implement all the helpers that you need for progressive web apps to work. Notifications were not supported for the longest time. They just did not want people to have access to that because, well, they want people to use the App Store where they can take a sizable commission. And apparently, it's been reported that these web apps that are open in Safari now will lose the stored local data after a while because they're handled as a Safari tab, so they might be purged at some point. Notifications will also not work at all. And to confirm that these changes are intentional and not just a regression from a beta, some people saw a specific system iOS pop-up appear stating that these progressive web apps will open in Safari from now on. So that's hinting at the fact that Apple just does not want you to use progressive web apps at all. Now, this is all limited to the EU, which reinforces the fact that this is absolutely intentional. Users from other countries don't seem affected on the iOS betas. And if I think about it, it's probably all linked to opening up iOS to third-party browser engines in the EU. Apple doesn't want developers to ship progressive web apps where they cannot control what is shipped in there and they cannot have their commission and people can just buy anything online from the progressive web app without paying the 30% commission. And previously, they could regulate that by just not adding these features to the Safari engine. They could say, hey, the only engine you can use on iOS is Safari's and Safari's engine doesn't really support PWAs really well, so you're still encouraged to do a real app in the App Store. But now that Apple has to allow third-party browser engines on iOS in the EU, well, Firefox or Google Chrome, well, could just implement all the features needed for a progressive web app to work, and so developers could completely bypass the App Store. And Apple absolutely does not want that. So they're actually voluntarily breaking support for PWAs on iOS to make sure that, yeah, they won't work and you will still have to use the App Store and its commission or an alternative App Store, uh, which is still going to be heavily regulated by Apple. So Limiting PWAs is just another way for Apple to keep control over their whole iOS platform, which, as I said, is malicious compliance. You're following the regulation in a twisted way that actually gives you an advantage instead of respecting the spirit of the law. So yeah, Apple, still a terrible company. No one is surprised. It's, yeah, Pikachu face, right? Now, we also have some security vulnerabilities this week. Uh, the first one is on Mastodon. It was found to be vulnerable to a high-severity flaw that could have been used to impersonate people and even to take over their accounts entirely. The flaw has a severity rating of 9.4 out of 10, which is very high, obviously, and it affects a lot of older versions of Mastodon from all the currently supported uh, series. A patch is already available, and... If you use a big, reliable instance, you're probably already up to date. And they also decided to keep all the details of the flaw uh, private. They are not disclosing any of it, so admins have time to patch their instances. Mastodon also apparently added a banner on each uh, admin page uh, for the instance to alert the admins of this and to ask them to update the server. And of course, this is where the decentralized nature of Mastodon kinda works against it, because obviously each instance, each Mastodon server has to be patched individually. So depending on whether your admin or you yourself, if you have your own instance, depending on whether they're quick to react, you can have a lot of unprotected users out there. 
Now, it is good to see that the flaw has been patched before being widely disclosed. If you run your own instance, you should absolutely apply all pending updates. If you have an account on a small instance, maybe it is time to pester your admin as well, just in case uh, they haven't updated it. But probably if they have a web page or a support page, they will probably tell you if they have applied the patch or not. And the second security vulnerability is for the Linux kernel this time. It is also a high level one rated at 9.8 out of 10 because it would allow the installation of malware at the firmware level where these things are really hard to detect and really hard to remove. Uh, this is basically another buffer overflow that lets attackers bypass secure boot and install anything that they want to execute that will then run before the UEFI firmware has loaded. Uh, this is what we call a bootkit, although this compared to other bootkits would be removed if you completely format your hard drive or wipe it. Uh, most bootkits would not be removed by that, you would have to actually completely upgrade the entire firmware of your computer, the entire BIOS. Now this is not the case for this one. And it's apparently not that easy to use as a security flaw because it needs to have either physical access to your device or have access to another pre-existing vulnerability on the system that would let the attacker completely control it. But if they already have access to that, then all bets are off and your system is basically toast. So you can already exploit this if you were already in a position to do a lot of bad things to the system you're attacking, but it is still pretty, pretty bad. Patches should be available very quickly to secure your systems against this. It's good that this one was caught relatively early, and if your system wasn't already compromised in one way or another, chances are you would not be vulnerable to it. So there's no need to panic. It's rated as very severe because it gives complete access, but chances are you're not going to suffer from it if your system isn't already completely full of holes. And we also have another thing about Mozilla. It looks like uh, they have noticed finally that Microsoft was up to their old tricks with Edge, Microsoft Edge, their web browser, because they've been pushing it over and over again to Windows users in what feels like flagrant abuse of their dominant position on the PC OS market. So Mozilla wrote a blog post titled over the edge, <laughs> the use of design tactics to undermine browser choice. And it is a detailed look at all the dark patterns and interactions Microsoft implemented in Windows to push people to use Edge instead of their preferred web browser, which would not be Edge in most cases. So there's stuff like injecting Edge ads when users visit Chrome's download page. It's not a banner in the web browser in Edge. It's when you visit Chrome web page to download it from Edge, you might see a big giant banner telling you, hey, no, don't use Chrome. Edge is the same, but it's better. Or there are ads in Bing. When you visit it using another web browser than Edge, they will tell you to install Edge instead. Uh, Microsoft displayed misleading notifications in Windows that were shaped and looked like security warnings to incite people to use Edge instead. It basically made them feel like not using Edge was unsafe. Or they also designed a voluntarily confusing interface to change the default web browser, which obviously was made so that people would still getting Edge all the time. There's also the fact that Edge apparently just grabbed browser data from Chrome to restore your tabs. So if it opened out of the blue, you would not really notice that it wasn't Chrome. And so you would keep using Edge instead of Chrome. So Mozilla says that by all of these dark patterns and weird interactions and modifications to Windows to push Edge, they are narrowing user choice and they're preventing fair competition. And 
Yes, it's exactly that. It's basically Internet Explorer era tactics again. And at the time, they were already ordered in a lot of countries to stop doing that. This wasn't based on the market share of Internet Explorer specifically at the time. It was based on the market share of Windows. The problem isn't that Edge is a dominant browser, because it's not. It's popular, but it's not the biggest. It doesn't have a monopoly. It's not that huge. But Microsoft has an enormous market share on the operating system market for PCs. And using that to push their own products is abuse of dominant position in a lot of countries. They were already ordered to display a browser ballot at the time when they were doing that with Internet Explorer, and apparently this has expired, but it should definitely be reinstated because they're doing it again with Edge, and it's just not fair to the competition. It's really weird, and a lot of people would just get scared that not using Edge isn't safe, or that they should use Edge because it's better or whatever. Users should be free of using any browser they want and changing browser in an operating system. That's true on iOS, on Android, on macOS, on Windows, on Linux. So stop pushing that, Microsoft. It's illegal, and you know it, and I hope countries will start looking into it and force them to stop doing that because it's really starting to get annoying. Okay, and now let's conclude this episode with the gaming news. Uh, so first we have some interesting things happening with the Linux gaming stack. Specifically, it's a new project to bring Windows games to Android, of all things. So the goal would be to bring Wine, DXVK, and VKD3D to Android, to have the complete translation layer from Windows games to stuff that can run on a Linux-based operating system. And they would combine that with FEX, which would let uh, the ARM devices that run Android emulate an x86 platform. This whole solution is called Cassia, or Cassia, C-A-S-S-I-A. It was presented by Igalia at FOSDEM 2024, which, as I said, happened uh, last weekend in Brussels. It's obviously still a work in progress, and it very likely will not give you great performance because, well, Android devices aren't necessarily as powerful as most x86-based PCs, and you have an architecture emulation layer in there. Not only are you just translating Windows calls into Linux, which has some overhead, but also you're translating x86 instructions into ARM-compatible instructions, which is going to slow things down. But what is most surprising is that this thing will be distributed as closed-source software. The app that you will be able to add to Android will be closed-source. They will upstream any modification that they make to Wine, DXVK, FEX, or VKD3D, because they will comply with the licenses, but the final package will not be open-source, which feels very weird. They did commit to open-sourcing everything if at some point they decided to stop working on that project, but it's not great. It's an interesting project, there are plenty of challenges to overcome, you will probably never going to be able to play like giant current AAA titles on an Android device, I guess they will also have to look at how they can implement controller support or maybe like video output for something, and yeah, it's probably not going to be the best experience for gaming, but it's still interesting. But the fact that it's not open source kind of sucks, especially for something mentioned at FOSDEM, which is all about free and open source software. But, well, we'll have to wait and see how this thing turns out. It's still an interesting project, but it's very disappointing that it's not going to be open source. And Manjaro unveiled a gaming handheld. It's called the Orange Pi Neo. They unveiled it at FOSDEM as well. And it's a handheld gaming console powered by, you guessed it, Manjaro as the distribution. 
It uses a Ryzen 7 7840U, which is pretty powerful, probably more powerful than what the Steam Deck has. It's an 8-core, 16-thread CPU. They will pair that with a 1920 by 1700 screen, which is 7 inches, and it's a 120Hz refresh rate. It has apparently a very solid cooling system, it has whole effect triggers for more precise inputs, and it has either 16 or 32 gigs of DDR5 RAM, and up to 2TB of PCIe 4 SSD storage. The battery is 50 Wh and you will get two USB 4 Type-C ports and a headphone jack. So we don't know yet how much this device will cost or when it will be available, but it looks like an interesting device, uh, especially since it will run a Linux distro out of the box, meaning that the hardware will probably be pretty open pretty well supported by Linux in general, and so you will probably be able to install anything other than Manjaro, which you probably should because, well, I know some people love Manjaro, but honestly, if you look at how the distro is managed and their choices in mixing AUR packages and Arch packages and shipping beta versions from Git from certain applications, it's just not a stable, well-run thing in my opinion, so you probably will not want to use that. Uh, you'll probably be better served with something like Nobara, Bazide, HoloASO, or, or stuff like that. Now personally, I don't need a new handheld, I already don't really play all that much on my Steam Deck, but if you're looking for something and the price is right, it could be a very interesting alternative to the Steam Deck because it has a higher refresh rate screen, higher resolution screen, although it doesn't seem like it's OLED, and it also has uh, a more powerful system on a chip, apparently. And it's also an interesting alternative to other providers of gaming handhelds because, well, you know that this one will support Linux very well, which might not be the case for products uh, from IANEO or One X Player, which generally tend to ship Windows as the base system. So, if you're a gaming enthusiast, it's worth keeping your eye on this one. It might be an interesting one. And speaking of handhelds, if you like to play games from other platforms than Steam on your Steam Deck or any device you have running Holo ISO or SteamOS, the non-Steam Launchers project just got an update. It's a little tool that lets you add launchers in the Steam Deck interface from games that you have installed from other sources, from other uh, various gaming stores. And they now have a scanning system to automatically detect these games and to add them to the Steam Deck's interface for you. It will also now support adding games from the Epic Game Store, from Ubisoft Connect, from the EA app, uh, from GOG Galaxy, Battle.net, and from Amazon Games. Now they're also working on a decky loader plugin, so at some point when it's validated and it's implemented into the Steam Deck plugin store, you will no longer have to take a trip to the desktop mode to install that and to use it, which is pretty nice. And personally, I don't really game all that much on my Steam Deck, but mostly because I haven't really found a game that I wanted to play on a handheld instead of playing it on my own console. I did the Danganronpa 1 and 2. I haven't done the next one because I sort of burnt out on the concept. Uh, but I need to find another game to play on the Steam Deck. People mentioned Undertale, which I never played. It could be a good one. But if you have any suggestions of cool games to play on a handheld, just leave them as a comment on the podcast website. It's at podcast.com thelinuxexp.com. And so with that, uh, this episode is coming to an end. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. So as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, all the links that I used are in the show notes. If you want to support the show and get access to a daily Linux and open source news podcast, you can also click any of the links in the show notes. 
And if you have time and you're willing, don't hesitate to leave a review for the podcast as a whole, wherever you're downloading or listening to it. Uh, It always helps uh, make that show more discoverable and so more people can learn about the wonderful world of Linux. So thank you all for listening and I guess you will hear me in the next one next week. Bye!